right. Uh, let's get started tonight. Um, we have finally turned the page on our little series on the cross. I waited and waited all the way up until yesterday, prayed about, thinking about, was getting through our meetings this weekend, so I sort of tunnel vision a little bit, to be honest, and then really settled in yesterday to say, okay, I'm waiting on that, you know, that proverbial flag to go up the flagpole that says this is the message, and I, I didn't land on one with the cross, but I've had the book of Ephesians in my heart for weeks now, and I think I told you a few weeks ago that I felt like we were probably going to go to a Pauline epistle next, and I didn't tell you what, but it, but it is Ephesians. So this marks our sixth topic in the several years we've been together here. We did, the, we did the book of John. We did 1 John. We did the Sermon on the Mount. We did the church. We did the cross. We haven't um, in any way, I don't feel, I feel like we could start over <laughs> on all of those and we have new material. That's the nature of studying the Bible as far as I'm concerned. Shockingly, I haven't done anything we haven't done a book from Paul yet. We've, we've done John, and we've done John's little letter, and then we've, we've been all over Paul's stuff because we've, we've done a little mini-series on the resurrections. We were in Paul's writings of the Corinthians. Paul pops up every week. You know, he's, he's, his, his material is so vital to our New Covenant understanding that you, you can't really teach the New Testament without Paul. He, when you've when you got two-thirds of the New Testament under your belt, you're going to get some stuff in everybody's lesson. That's sort of the way it goes. But we haven't really tackled one in this group, top to bottom. And Ephesians really jumps out at me because of the fact that I think it has this universal quality. It's rare in Paul's letters that he's not dealing with something. And what I mean by that is he's not dealing with a sin. He's not dealing with growth. He's not dealing with an issue. He's not trying to fix something. He's not trying to help him with anything. Ephesians is just a letter from a guy that loves his church and says, here's what you have. And here's what you ought to do with it. And honestly, Ephesians is sort of a six-chapter-long, stylistically, a six-chapter-long sermon that you would deliver in any church on any given Sunday. And it would sound something like this. Hey, believers, here's who you are in Christ. Here's what you have. Here's what Jesus has done for you. Now that you know that, here's what you ought to do with that this week. Here's how you maybe should go live. Here's how you should conduct yourself. If you have just the front half, then you have identity, but you don't have application. And if you have just the back half, then you have application with no identity. And these two things need to be together because application with identity usually tilts towards works, guilt, condemnation, pressure, performance. Identity without application, I have found, kind of tilts towards laziness and apathy and can get a little selfish. And I don't need to do anything. I'm, you know, I've got everything I need in Jesus. You got to have those two together, which is why, really, when we present the Word of God, what we're doing is trying to establish what you have and challenge you to do something with it. And you, if you put those two things together, you've got the, you got Jesus. You got Jesus who goes, "I am my Father's Son," and then goes out and does something with it. He doesn't ever just sit on that. And there's no good pastor, no good church planter, no good apostle. That wants to see anyone just set on what they have. So that's part of the reason why uh, I'm, I'm so enamored of this little book. I'm going to title tonight, Grace and Peace. And this will really be studies in Ephesians number one. I have no idea how long it will take us. You could probably get a good idea just by looking at how long it's taken us to do other books. Uh, John, it took us a long time. But that's 21 chapters. 
First John took us longer than I thought, and it's only five chapters. This is a six-chapter book, so, you know, hold on to your hats as far as I'm concerned. We might be here a while. Um, and sometimes we'll go quickly, and sometimes we'll go at a snail's pace. Some weeks we'll cover five verses, and some weeks we'll probably cover five words. It's kind of the nature of how we treat this, and I don't have a plan. I, I like it that way. I like just seeing where does God want to go. If, we, if this is our next segment of Scripture, what do we do with it? And if I feel nothing, I have no problem speeding through. And if I feel like, hey, why are you going so fast? Um, I have no problem slowing down, spending a few weeks at a spot. So together, as we study this, I think these two words, grace and peace, actually kind of pop out to the forefront of everything that Paul says. But I think together we'll see that happen um, more and more uh, as we go through this, this book. Um, possibly Paul's letter to the church at Laodicea. When you read Ephesians, think that. There's this little spot in Colossians 4 where Paul mentions to the church at Colossae, read the letter that I wrote to the church at Laodicea. Which is interesting because we don't have a letter to Laodicea from Paul. We don't have a book of Laodiceans. The closest we get to anything about Laodicea is one of the seven churches of Revelation, the seventh of seven churches. And Paul doesn't write Revelation. So what is that mysterious letter to the Laodiceans? I think it's Colossians 4.16 where he mentions that. Well, most scholars believe that the letter to the Laodiceans is either A, lost. So we don't ever know where it is. Maybe we weren't supposed to. But a large number of scholars believe B, it's the letter to the Ephesians. And part of the reason for that is because it's generic and it doesn't have a specific issue that it deals with. And it's been believed for nearly 2000 years that the letter to Ephesus or slash Laodicea was a circular letter, a lot like the book of Revelation. In other words, the Ephesian letter was meant to go church to church. So when your church received it, you were to read it aloud and then you were to fold it up and send it on to the next church. Maybe if you had someone that was able to write, you make a copy and you send it on. Our earliest um, papyrus of Ephesians is like third century. So somewhere in a couple hundred years, there had to be some copies floating around somewhere. So maybe we're dealing with a letter to Laodicea. Maybe we're dealing with a a letter um, that would have been titled something else. We don't know. But for church history, the book of Ephesians has held a very special place because of some of the themes that it it uh, holds so dear. It's also been a controversial little letter. As you can tell, this is gonna be a lot of what we do tonight because when you start a book, you gotta put some stuff out there to know what you're working with. And I didn't give you guys much of a heads up other than a group text to everybody yesterday that goes, hey, we're going to Ephesians. So it's not like you had a lot of time to really prepare your hearts and minds for Ephesians. I wanna encourage you to read it, by the way. Only six chapters, won't take you too long. It's a fairly easy read. And man, it is an uplifting little book, especially just boom, right out of the gate, Paul lays out some really rich theology. That first chapter alone, I don't know how long we'll be, but that one, could, you could stay there for a long time just on the good stuff you have in Christ. But the little letter to the Ephesians has been controversial for this fact. Um, well, this one I just want to throw out there. I don't want to do anything with it. There's some scholarly argument about whether or not Paul even wrote it. We have just a shred or two of evidence that it might have surfaced in the early 2nd century. 
written by one of Paul's disciples to try to shore up some stuff that Paul would have taught. That's all I'll say about it because we don't have proof one way or the other. I do want to throw it out there because if you read enough commentary, you're going to come across it. Do with it as you will. It's very Pauline, in, and I'll show you how in a moment, at least in accordance with the way he writes with his other books. But it's also controversial because the book of Ephesians has been used to hurt people. Probably as much as anything Paul wrote. The book of Ephesians has been used, and I think you probably know that I mean hurting people because it's used out of context. If you don't know, then let me make that very clear. I don't think the Holy Spirit has Paul pen a letter designed to slit throats. But boy, this one's been used as a way to suppress, uh, as a way to give male dominance in marriage, um, sort of put women in their place kind of book. There's chunks of chapter 5 that have been abused to the point that has caused people to believe that Paul was trying to say something about women in marriage that uh, I, I don't think we're going to have to work real hard to find the heart of the matter with Paul. Um, and worse, that's bad enough, and yes, that's bad, but worse is the fact that up until the American Civil War, there was some pretty damning chunks of Ephesians that were used to actually support the idea of slavery in the American South. And again, I don't believe Paul wrote it in, in, of course Paul doesn't write it thinking about North American slavery. There's no such thing when Paul writes the book of Ephesians. But portions of what Paul said had been taken and used to the advantage. And this is kind of the here a scripture, there a scripture, everywhere a scripture, scripture kind of theology I've talked to you about before, which is pull the verse, make it say what you need it to say. But hey, you got yourself a verse with a chapter and verse behind it. And so now you've got yourself a theology and we can do that with just about anything, pull things out of context. So Ephesians has been used in that manner. We're going to tackle these things as we get to them. We're not going to shy away from them. We're going to try to look at them through the lens that, that I think Paul lays them out. We're going to look at them through the lens of the other New Testament scriptures, Jesus included, to help prop up what Paul is trying to say. And we're going to be really honest with how people have used them to abuse and used them to hurt. And hopefully, if we're good Bible students, we can see through the other side and find out how these things can be used to abuse and hurt and what's wrong with that viewpoint and what changed it. Um, and... The scary part is that it hasn't necessarily changed. Some people hold deep beliefs that they don't ever say anything about because it's just not popular. And then when the tide turns and it becomes acceptable to say things, I think we all see this happening in our world in politics or whatever. When the tide turns and you feel like you can get by with saying things, people kind of say what they always thought. And so the scary part is, is that if there's been generations that take books like this and use it to their advantage and it's bad, they probably are still out there. They're just quiet. And as they get some steam and get some power and get some authority, these things come back to the surface. And so we have to be vigilant, I think, in, understand, in, in, in looking for Christ in the Scriptures and it, we can't just say, well, those idiots 150 years ago, look at how dumb they were when they interpreted the Bible. It's the wrong way to approach the word because somebody 150 years from now might look back on us and go, man, those idiots, how dumb they were in interpreting the Bible. And so we want to try to have a baseline by which we approach it. I think that's the, the best thing to do. Let's start 
well, we've already started, <laughs> as you can tell. But let's say this tonight. I got a few things I want to give you as a, as a means of an outline. I think it'll kind of help you as you study this book, because I encourage you to hit these six chapters this week, all right? And here's some things to think about while you do. Ephesians is an ideal letter for the Christian church because it addresses believers who are rich in Christ but are unaware of their wealth. Evidence that the Ephesians were living pretty shabby, sort of below the, the poverty line in regards to maybe even materially below the poverty line, but that wasn't unusual for the world of that day, but definitely below the poverty line in the sense of their theology and the things of the spirit. So Paul writes this letter and once they know who they are in Christ, this letter then applies that knowledge and it shows us the blueprint for a life lived out of that wealth. That's why I said to you earlier, it lays out what you have. It tells you what to do with it. This is a great example of how to preach, I think. And it's also a great example of how ignored Paul's preaching style often is. In grace circles that I run around in, we get a lot of quoting Paul. Quote Paul, grace. He's a grace guy, finished work guy. But I've noticed we quote a lot of the front half of his letters. People don't quote the back half of Paul's letters much because the back half of Paul's letters are the application of the information you had. Well, we love information. We're not crazy about application. And so Ephesians is a letter that pay attention because it's information and it's application. It's almost 50-50 that it's application or information and application. In fact, I broke it down this way for you. Chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. 1 to 3, really your heavenly bank account, for lack of a better term. Look at some of the stuff you get in that heavenly bank account. We're going to have this great honor the next few weeks of trying to unpack this bank account, really try to open up that vault and say, here's what belongs to you in Christ, stuff like adoption. Of course, we're talking spiritual adoption. We're going to talk about what that means. Um, acceptance, redemption, forgiveness, wisdom, inheritance, the sealing over of the Holy Spirit. A phrase I like to use, everyday grace. We won't see the phrase everyday grace in this, but we're going to get into everyday grace. The fact that grace is not just a sal salvation experience. Grace is not just a help me when I've sinned experience, because if that's the case, then grace isn't any good unless you're messing up. And grace is better than you messing up. It's not just the Holy Spirit's response to failure. And so we've got some everyday grace in there. And citizenship. This is a fun topic of what it means to actually belong to the kingdom. In honesty, and in, in, in all truth, every spiritual blessing you have happens in those first three chapters. So the front half of this chap, this book will be who we are. I don't know that I'm going to be able to pull this off. I'm going to think of this way. I'm going to tell myself I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to watch as I crash and burn. But what I'm going to tell myself I'm going to do is that I want every week when we talk about these front three chapters, I don't really want to do week after week after week after week after week after week of identity. That's the first three chapters. I know my pace. We'll be here for months just trying to get through the first three chapters. And then the last three chapters are application, application, application. So that's months of identity. Months of, I, I'm going to tell myself that what I'd like to do is identity application every week. A little bit of the front of Ephesians, a little bit of the back of Ephesians. If I can do this, this will be unlike any study we've done yet because we've went left to right. We've went top to bottom. We've went verse one, verse two, verse three, verse four, verse five. I'm going to try to do left to right, top to bottom, but jump to the middle, jump to the back. 
so that we don't stay in, because these are pretty well defined in Ephesians. And I don't want to just be up in identity only. And then when we get to application, it's just week after week of what you need to do, what you need to do, what you need to do, what you need to do. I think it's better to go, here's what you have, here's what you should do. And if we can do that, then every week you'll get, here's what I have, here's what I could do with it. Here's what he's paid for. Here's what's in my bank account. Here's a check I ought to write with it. <laughs> Instead of bank account, bank account, bank account, months of write check, write check, write check, write check. I don't know if I can do that. I'm going to try. And so I haven't approached a study that way before where I've tried to bounce that back and forth. Um, I'm not going to pull it off every week, but you're going to see a noble effort. And uh, if we can do it, I'm hoping that we leave then with applicable ideas every week and not just a verse-by-verse run through this great letter to the church at Ephesus. That leaves us with 4, 5, and 6, which is simply, not simply, but it's a little easier to write than all of that stuff we're doing in the first three chapters. last three chapters are our spiritual walk. We find that it is rooted in Christ. It's really rooted, you're going to get in Him a lot in this book. In Him, in Him, in Him, in Him. Well, all the in Him that you have, in Him stuff grows out. So... Our spiritual walk that's rooted in Him, it's manifested in the physical world because I don't think it does you much good to simply think about what's in your spiritual bank account and all it gets you is spiritual stuff. You're not just a spiritual person. You are also a material person. You are a physical person. And so Christ is not simply sitting in the invisible going, come on, get your spirit man together. Someday you get to come up here and be with me. He is affecting the natural world. He's affecting your body. He's affecting your mind. He's affecting your outlook. He's affecting the world around you. And you are supposed to be doing the same thing. This is the participation. And so he doesn't just tell you, hey, you love your neighbor. I'm going to stay up here in the invisible. He, he works this through us. And so all of this in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is actually to come out of us and manifest in our physical world in four, five, and six, which is why I want to do a little bit of both each week so that you go out and see a manifestation in the physical world. When we went through John, we did this in the early lessons. We went to the back of John for like the first month or two that we were in John. We went to the back of John every week and we quoted the verse where John says, I have written these things to you so that you might believe in him and by believing in him, have life in him. And we did that every week for like a couple months so it would really root John. I don't know if we'll do this every week, but I want to take you to an Ephesians verse that's not in our context tonight or or not in our verse by verse, but is really the underpinning, I think, of this book. Look at Ephesians 2.10. For, for my purposes, this is the verse in Ephesians that really tells you what this book is and I think says the outline of this book in one sentence. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you, you could even do this... Um, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, parentheses, chapters one, two, and three. Because really, all that chapters one, two, and three is going to show you 
everything he's worked out for you, all the creative power of the Holy Spirit that's in you, and the Christ Jesus that you are a part of. That's chapters one, two, three. You could, you could put the parentheses right there. Um, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, parentheses, chapters four, five, and six. It's, it's like in one verse, Paul says, here's what I really am trying to say in this whole book. Jesus did a bunch of great stuff for you. It's his work, you're his work. He created it, he fashioned it, it's, it's living in you. But it's not just supposed to be there so you can shout and get all excited about going to heaven someday. It's actually supposed to come out of you in your walk. And so Ephesians is really, to me, Ephesians 2.10 is the whole book wrapped up in one verse. So if you want to really get an idea about what this book is, just live with this verse a little bit this week. Here, here's simple homework. Dwell on Ephesians 2.10. Maybe look at the context around it, but just think about the power of that thought, that, that idea that I am what God has worked out. I am the craftsmanship. That's a better word. The craftsmanship of God. Some have said masterpiece. I am the masterpiece of God. It's not just... Scratch that. I'm the masterpiece of God and it's in Christ that I'm that masterpiece. So if you can see, if you can see me... What I hope you can see is that God is crafting me in the image of Christ, but he's doing it for good works so that I should walk them out. So God isn't just doing something in me with a wink and then saying, come on up to heaven. God's doing something in me so that I can live out what God is doing in me and walk it out on the earth. And if you ever needed proof that God wants you to love your neighbor, Ephesians 2, 10 is a good idea. Otherwise, why in the world does God care if you walk it out? You know? I mean, if it's just God's grace saved me, he gives you all your good stuff, okay, just lay around and, you know, do whatever you want to do, and then you get to go to heaven when you die. And if, if, but if I'm supposed to be walking it out, why? Why walk it out? Who cares if I walk it out? So if you've got this big heavenly bank account full of all the riches of God's goodness and grace, and God says, I gave it to you so you'd live it out, then living on this earth must be a big deal to God. And the people you encounter must be a big deal to God. So much of a big deal that he gave you this big investment. And he went, I don't want you to just hoard it. I don't want you to just hold on to it. I want you to use it. All right. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. All that was introduction. To get us started on this little book, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are our two verses tonight. We'll throw in one more from late in the book in just a little bit. But for now, this is really our focus. Paul introducing himself. Here's how we know we're dealing with a Pauline book. Um, this is real simple. He signs his name. And we can argue it isn't him if he doesn't or if the author does not. And the reason we are able to argue that is because Paul always signs his name. He even tells us in one of his epistles that I always sign my name. And that's probably because even in Paul's day, there were letters floating around from Paul that were not from Paul. And so we've also assumed based upon some of his writings that he probably had a very distinctive penmanship. 
Um, at one point he brags, I wrote this last part in my own hand, as you can tell. And so there, he must have had a way of writing that was pretty distinctive. Um, this is a side note, doesn't really mean anything for your Ephesians study, but this is also one of the reasons why scholars are pretty torn on whether Paul wrote Hebrews. Some people give Paul Hebrews like it's just a given. Um, pump the brakes on that because Paul didn't, no one signed Hebrews. And Paul makes it pretty clear that he always signs his letters. Now you could say, well, he didn't for several reasons and there's good arguments. It's also not his Greek, straight up, not his Greek. Um, there's a style to Greek and there's a distinct style and Hebrews ain't it. Um, so there's, there's several different styles of Greek in the New Testament, but some of the categorizations of them are um, Paul. And so Ephesus falls in that is my point there. So whether you are of the camp that this was a, a late edition, it's not really Paul or not, it has every hallmark of Paul. Um, and one of those chief hallmarks um, is grace and peace. I want to get to that in a moment. Before I do, I, I want to I say a word about that. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. I get a lot of questions from people in regards to the will of God. How do I know the will of God for my life, they say. I, I, I want to be in God's will. Um, there was a teaching that I kind of got into for a little while coming up that tried to parse the will of God into different categories. And we would say things like, there's the permissible will of God and there's the perfect will of God. And what we meant by that was that God has what he'll let you do and then God has what he wants you to do. And I was confused by that because to me it seems like God will let you do whatever you want. So wouldn't everything be God's permissible will? And then what you're supposed to do be God's perfect. So, that does, so let's, I think we're muddy in the waters. Let's put it this way. One of the key things that you'll notice if you read the Bible left to right, God doesn't always get what he wants. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. They don't all, that doesn't happen on this side of glory. I'm hoping that it happens on the other side. I'll be honest with you. I hope that when you die, you get to go to, you stand before God. He goes, you, want, you sure you don't want Sure you don't want me? I, I hope that happens. I, God's not willing that any should perish. So if God gets his will, then maybe no one perishes. I'll leave that to the Lord. I'm not smart enough to figure out whether that happens or not. And it's not my place. Uh, plus it gets me in a lot of trouble if I try to act like I do know. So I'm not going to. Um, but I do see that even though God doesn't always get to do what he wants, and things don't always happen according, uh, you know, you don't see God... Uh, Stepping in to stop bad things from happening all the time. Awful things happen. Chaos happens. Evil happens. Sin happens. We go all the way through the Bible. We do have story after story after story of God intervening and chasing people with his will. Enough so that I think that if God's will is for you to do something, guess what? You're going to do it. I am a believer that the biblical stories are God's way of saying Ha ha, I win. If I call you and you say no, I'll just chase you. If you say I don't want to do it, I'll go with you wherever you go and I'll bless the stuff you do, but I'll never stop saying, hey, I want you to go do that. And you can say no forever, but I'll just keep saying, hey, 
I really want you to do that. And I think, you know, if, if, if writing this book on Jonah did anything to me, it convinced me that if God wants you to go to Nineveh and you hate Ninevites, so you go buy a ticket and get on a boat to go to Tarshish to get as far away from God as you can, there will be a storm that chases you across the water. And when the mariners throw you overboard into the water, there'll be a whale, a mysterious, miraculous whale that's been following your boat in the middle of a storm this whole time to swallow you up so that you'll have 72 hours to rethink things if you need it. And that then he'll spit you out on a foreign beach and say, now what do you think? Do you want to go to Nineveh yet? And what that tells me is, don't worry about the will of God. Just follow the Spirit. He won't leave you alone. What you're supposed to do will end up being what you do. Because God isn't going to lose. The, the, the will of God will be done. I, I'm, I'm a believer that those stories... Okay, let me, let, me, let, me, let me use another one. Um, David is supposed to be king someday. And there's a giant to drop. But he's got seven brothers in front of him. And whenever Samuel, the old man, comes through to anoint a king, you're going to anoint the biggest, the fastest, and the strongest. And so David's older brother shows up, and God speaks to Samuel and goes, this isn't the next king. And then brother number two, this isn't the next king. Three, four, five, six, seven. And Samuel goes, I know God told me to come here and anoint one of your boys to be king, but these ain't them. I don't know what to say. And Jesse, as if he's forgotten about David, goes, oh, well, you know, I got one more. You know, he's just a kid, though. I mean, he's out there playing with his slingshot and watching sheep. We keep him out there. I mean, he do his thing. Go get him. Bring him in. So Holy Spirit says to Samuel, I don't look upon the height or the stature. I look upon the heart. I'm not like you. David walks up, boom, anointed king. You know the story. No matter what, God's going to find what he wants to find. If, if he needs Saul of Tarsus to be Paul, he's going to go show up in the middle of the road to Damascus. And I think if Paul missed it there, I got to think that on his way back out of Damascus, he'd have saw Jesus again. I mean, he's going to keep coming your way. He's going, and if he doesn't find Paul, he's going to find someone. I think that's evidenced by the fact that that narrative flow of Acts just follows Paul after he finally says yes. It doesn't follow Peter. It doesn't follow James. It doesn't follow John. It follows where the Holy Spirit wants to go because that's the will that God has for that hour. Peter is fishing, casting nets into the water. He's not asking for trouble. And here comes Jesus. <laughs> Cast your nets on the other side of the boat. Peter takes his nets out, slings them over to the other side of the boat. He has a so many fish, he has to bring all of his buddies' boats over so they can help him get the nets back on into his boat. And Jesus, that day, Peter falls down on the deck of his ship and says, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Don't tell me you can run from the will of God. I mean, sometimes the will of God is he blesses you with so many fish, you can't help but acknowledge that it was God. You're not smart enough to figure out how to fish that well. You're not smart enough to figure out how to kill giants with a slingshot. You're not smart... Paul says it's according to the will of God because Paul understands. I didn't choose this. It chose me. I didn't pick this life. It picked me. I was doing what I thought was godly. I was going down the road to Damascus to kill these people in the name of God. And there's Jesus. Because the will of God finds me. But the responsibility we have is be quick to say yes. 
and flow in where, what, what he would have you to do. So the will of God seems to me, the will of God seems to be that which chases you and won't let you go. Um, here's another thing about grace and peace. Paul begins every one of his letters with the phrase grace and peace. In one way or the other, it's in there. In fact, he never waits longer than seven verses to pronounce the blessing of grace and peace to you. Okay, by the way, I know Paul didn't break it into verses, but even when the translators break it into verses, it's so early in the letter, we never get past like the seventh verse. And I think that's Romans is the deepest into any of his letters before that phrase pops up. It's the Pauline greeting, grace and peace to you. Late in his life, he writes two letters to Timothy and one to Titus. The Timothy and Titus letters, he says, grace, mercy, and peace. So he adds a word. I think it might be a sign that an older Paul was finally parsing the difference between grace and mercy because theologically they are different things. Mercy is the denial of that which you deserve. It's the holding back of that which should be yours because God is a merciful God. You don't always get the judgment that you deserve because God is a merciful God. Grace is the goodness of God extended to you that you don't pay for. Think of mercy as that which you don't get that you should. And grace is that which you get that you can't earn. And an older Paul starts to see that there's a difference in, the, in, in those things and that maybe that, that should be ministered. So I'll, I'll not stay long on that, but I, I do want to emphasize the idea of grace and peace because I actually think that grace and peace is the reason Paul opens with it is not just because it sounds good. I think Paul opens every letter with it because it's the benchmark of the gospel. That no matter what I'm about to say to you, we're going to open it with grace and peace. And some of his letters are scathing, guys. Some of them are hard. He's dealing with real problems. And yet he opens with grace and peace. Because it doesn't matter how bad your audience is, they deserve grace and peace. It doesn't matter how wicked they are, they deserve grace and peace. This idea that what people deserve is truth and get stuff right. No, what they deserve... What they need in regards to the gospel is they need to hear the grace of God and the peace that comes with Jesus. That's the benchmark of hearing the good news. And it ought to be poured out of us. It, it ought to be the default position of the church is that we extend grace and peace to you. Now you can sin against the grace and the peace. You can fight against the grace and the peace. You can lie against grace and peace and push against grace and peace. And we might have a new conversation about how long we have to keep fellowship with you or how much of our heart we can give to you. But my default position is grace and peace. And I got to be honest, my, mine is not always grace and peace. I want it to be, but it's not. And so I'm, I, prayer is spiritual formation. So I'm praying it, Father, Make me the kind of person that opens with grace and peace to every person I meet. I, this Paul, not that Paul, this Paul has no problem with it in the pulpit. I have no problem with it in church. When you invite me up to speak, I have no problem blanket grace and peace because I truly believe in the power of the pulpit and the power of the spoken word. And I believe in that power to actually set people at ease. I've watched it happen. You can set a crowd at ease with grace and peace. And I believe the worst thing you can do is, is a breach against that. Pulpit, Paul, no problem with grace and peace. Driving down the road, Paul, problems with gr extending <laughs> liberal grace and peace. I don't think it's my first response to people. 
all the time. And I want it to be. And so I say it humorously, tongue in cheek, but the reality is, is I, I want it to be in every walk of life that Father let my first thought be grace to that guy, peace to that person. And I don't know that Paul had it either because we're the best version of ourselves when we write. In fact, you're extremely powerful if you can write because writing allows you to organize your thoughts, kick out the things you don't want, and work on it, work on it, work on it till you say it just right. And that's a powerful thing. And so maybe Paul, I kind of hope that the Paul, that Paul, wasn't as quick to give grace and peace if he knew you than he was if he wrote it down. The only reason I hope that is because that, that, that gives me hope. Like, hmm, okay, Paul struggled with this a little bit. Maybe it's okay if I struggle with this a little bit too. Um, I just say this and I'm, I'm, I'm heading to the end. What's that mean? Don't qualify people for grace and peace. Don't wait till they qualify. Okay, if you read Paul's letters, the people in the letters are doing some bad stuff sometimes. And he never says, grace and peace to those of you who are living right. Hello, this is Paul, the apostle of the Lord. According to the will of God, grace and peace to those of you who are doing right. The rest of you, hold on, because this is about to get choppy in here. No, it's a blanket grace and peace. And then they turn right around and start to show them some things that's going wrong. And yet grace and peace is the, is the proclamation. And so may it be our proclamation. I really think this. I think if you understand the cross of Jesus Christ, I didn't even know what I was doing. This hit me today. I didn't know what, I hope I'm following the Spirit in doing this series on Ephesians. Because I did not plan on doing Ephesians when we started the cross. I didn't plan on doing the cross when we started the church. I didn't plan on doing the church when we started the Sermon on the Mount. Each has flowed into the next. The Sermon on the Mount, we did as an exploration of this great sermon by Jesus and how does it apply to us. And I got through that and went, the church is that, aren't we? Hmm, maybe we're not. What's the Bible think about us? And so there came the series on the church. It was really one birth the other. Out of that was the cross because we got into the church and went, the church is supposed to be proclaiming the wisdom to the world. That's a scripture we're going to get into. We're supposed to be the ones that proclaim the wisdom of the world. What's the wisdom we have that they don't have? The cross. And so 10 weeks on the cross. And yet here we are now in Ephesians and we're getting hit with grace and peace. And the truth is that the more you understand the cross of Jesus Christ and what was happening at the cross, the easier it is for you to proclaim grace and peace on the world. Because you've seen what Jesus does at the cross and you know that when we were enemies, Christ died for us. And you know that the cross was a gift and you know that the cross is a gateway and all of the stuff about the cross and we didn't even scratch the surface. The series on the cross could just keep going and going. But once you get that, that revelation, then grace and peace is natural. Because you go, how can I not have grace and peace if the cross was that great for me? Let's close here. Ephesians chapter 4. And verse 29, here's your application tonight of grace and peace. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Okay, so if you're going to open with grace and peace to you, how do you apply that on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, part of what you do is watch the stuff that comes out of your mouth. If it's corrupt, which means it tears down, check it. 
And this is active for those of us who are actively hoping for spiritual formation and reformation, that we're watching the corruption that comes out of our mouth. Instead, if it's good for the necessary edification, and we'll, we'll, we'll hit this verse again before we leave Ephesians, but edification is the building up. It's necessary that I build people up. How do I do it? With my words. We think we can do everything with money. This is what's hurting the American church. We think that everything good that can be done is done with money and power. And that's why we're real big into politics. Because we think if we had money and power on our side, we could do more for the kingdom. Scratch that. Kingdom doesn't need your money. Kingdom doesn't need your power. Kingdom needs you to shut your mouth with corrupt talk and stop tearing people down. That would help the kingdom way more than a couple billion would. The kingdom of God is supposed to be building people up. There's a necessary edification that goes on when I'm encountering you. It's necessary that I build you up. It's necessary that I edify you. So I got to stop the things that tear you down so that what I say imparts grace. So it's not just grace to you, grace and peace to you. It's pull back on the other junk that's ripping people apart. This is where driving Paul out here struggles with preacher Paul. Preacher Paul has no problem with building you up. Driving Paul wants to run you over and knock you down. And so driving Paul needs to stop with the corrupt communication that comes out of his mouth and say, I want to be the guy that builds up, not the guy that tears down. It's not really fair that I'm the one up here having to say what all is bad about driving Paul. And you guys just all get to sit out there with your holy driving versions of yourself. And nobody knows any of the corrupt communication coming out of your mouths, but that's between you and God. So don't be a liar. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the, for the moving of the Spirit that has stirred in me this week about this series. I'm very excited, Lord, to walk through this little letter to the church at Ephesus. And it feels like it's the letter to the, all the churches. Like it's, this belongs to us. It's not just some city in the Middle East. So Father, help us as we journey. Help us with this word tonight to declare grace and peace. To parse the difference between what builds up and what corrupts. Thank you for this journey. And as we walk this out, may we start to cash in on our heavenly bank account. Not so that we can consume it, but so that we can walk it out. Help us as we learn what that means in Jesus' name. Amen.